money works because we all agree it works. People will take your paper and bits of metal in trade for services or goods because they know someone else will do the same for us. And because we all agree it works, some are tempted to cheat the system by creating their own bits of paper and metal. It's called counterfeiting, and it's been around as long as, well, there's been money. And today we have the story of an 18th century counterfeiter named Mary Peck Butterworth on the 148th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. So, how you doing today? You know, today's story is a bit shorter than usual, so I thought for something different. Well, look, I think we've known each other long enough that we could spend a few moments in peaceful silence without it seeming awkward or weird. Am I right? So I'll put on some relaxing music, and maybe we can just sit and enjoy the morning while we drink our coffee. Well, I guess some people don't like to relax. But then again, I suppose you didn't come to this podcast to sit and chill. But like I said, today's story is a little short. And to me, that's a bit frustrating because, well, I could not find a lot of information. And that leads me to something I want to talk about. It's websites out there who just reprint what's on Wikipedia. Ha, I say to myself, here's a place that has a bio of the person I'm researching. I start to read it, and wait, it's been copy and pasted directly from Wikipedia. Really? Most of the time, on top of the page, it'll even say, from Wikipedia. But what's the point? Do you think anybody is going to go to your website before they check out Wikipedia? I encountered a lot of those while doing today's episode, and it really was irritating. So since today's story is a bit shorter than I would like, I decided to do something different and play Oliver Stone and use some poetic license and have some fun. But don't worry, I'll let you know when I'm making things up. But in my defense, the way I envision it could have actually happened. We just don't know. And since we have some time, I thought I would recommend a film for you to watch. Today's recommendation is for those fans of low-budget horror films. It's a film from 1967 by Jack Hill called Spider Baby or the Maddest Story Ever Told. Now Jack Hill, you might know, is from the world of Roger Corman. And he did exploitation films such as Switchblade Sisters, The Swinging Cheerleaders, Foxy Brown and Coffee. But Spider Baby was one of his early black and white films. It stars Lon Chaney Jr. in probably one of his last films, along with Sid Haig. It's a horror story about a strange family who suffers from something called Mary Syndrome, a rare genetic malady that makes them regress mentally to a condition of pre-human savagery and cannibalism. Chaney plays the caretaker of the children that are suffering from this condition and tries to protect them. 
But when a group of people come into the house to check on things and are forced to spend the night, well, you'll have to see it. But here's the thing. The film is supposedly in the public domain, and there's a lot of horrendous versions of it out there. Don't watch these. In 2007, Jack Hill himself saw one of these public domain versions and was horrified. So he located an original print or negative or something, and he practically had to steal it. Then he used that to master a new version and issued a DVD. The DVD with the film also has a commentary by both him and Sid Haig, and they revisit the house it was filmed in and, and a lot of other stuff. It's a fun DVD to have. But trust me, if you want to see the film, please don't watch the free version you can find on archive.org or YouTube because they really are awful. Anyway, the weather still sucks here in Chicagoland. It seems like winter is fighting not to die. We might get one 50-degree day, and the next week it's all back down to the 30s. The other day we had snow. <sighs> hey, Mother Nature, you're drunk. It's spring out there. All that being said, I've got a hot cup of coffee and a story to tell. The story of a woman who made some extra money, literally. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Counterfeits for cookies. Someone is passing around fake bills to Girl Scouts during their biggest fundraiser of the year. Yeah, Steve, it's really hard because experts say these counterfeiters are taking $1 bills, washing them, and then putting bigger bills right over the top of them. So even counterfeit detecting pens don't work anymore. And now two brownies are out 40 bucks. There was a time when only one partner in a marriage left home for the day to work while the other stayed at home to take care of the house and kids. I'm talking about the traditional family before the 1960s, a typical man-woman marriage. It was usually the man who left for the day and the woman stayed home. It was that way for centuries. That's the way things were way back before the area known as the United States was an independent country when it was still colonial America. Back in colonial America, men and women were expected to be married at a young age. Most women were married at around age 20. Before that, their mothers taught them household skills and that marriage was the only meaningful kind of life. Men, of course, believed that educating a woman was a waste of time. It was expected for most women to be married and at least have one child before she was 25. Basically, colonial women were pregnant or nursing during most of their reproductive years. Of course, there were exceptions to this. There were women who helped with their husbands' businesses while others worked as nurses and teachers. But those who worked outside the home were the exception, not the rule. Yet even with these restrictions, some women in the 18th century found ways to help with the family's income. Mary Peck Butterworth, who some might call Mrs. Butterworth, did what she could to help the family income. But this Mrs. Butterworth didn't sell maple syrup to make money. The Butterworth in our story made her own money in the kitchen. Mary Peck was born to Joseph and Martha Peck in Rehoboth, Massachusetts on July 27, 1686. 
Not much is known about her until she married to John Butterworth, a well-known house builder sometime around 1710 or 11. The two eventually had a family of seven kids. And as far as I can tell, John was doing well in his business, yet Mary thought they needed a little extra cash to help out with expenses. Now, some have speculated that Mary's choice of business might have begun before her marriage, but what is known is that by 1716, she was running a successful counterfeiting ring. Now, I'm going to pause my story here to say that early in my research, it dawned on me that I didn't know what was used for money in 18th century colonial America. Where did the cash come from? I know the colonies at this time didn't produce their own currency, I don't think. So what currency did they use? It was at this point I turned to historian Gordon Fry for help. Of course, you know Gordon was part of the team of Gordon and Nancy Fry, the hosts of the History Files on the PSYCON network. Gordon explained the money situation in an email, and the next day, Nancy sent me a second version of the email with all the typos corrected. I'll post Nancy's version on the Coffee with Jeff website. Anyway, as Gordon explained, they used a combination of several currencies. First of all was obviously the British currency then available. A pound sterling, shillings, pennies, farthings, and groats. Yes, they had a coin called groat, and I had to look it up. Apparently, it was worth four English pennies. Then, too, the real also known as the Spanish dollar, also known as pieces of eight, were in common circulation and, in fact, were probably more common in the American colonies than the British currency. The reason why they were called pieces of eight was that to make change, one used an axe. American pennies were tabulated to about 100 per real. Gordon doubts if a lot of gold doubloons made it here. Interestingly, Spanish currency was held in great esteem as it was considered to be much less debased than other currencies then in use. Since Spain had plenty of silver coming from their mines in San Luis Portici in Peru and Zacatecas in Mexico, they had no need to mix it with base metals. Therefore, they minted in a close to pure silver as you could get and not have it wear out immediately. How it got into circulation in the English colonies, when both English and Spain practiced forms of mercantilism, which for bad trades with any other than the mother country, is up to the listeners to conclude. At some point, colonies were issuing paper currency, but Gordon didn't know just when that started. It was mostly because proper metal currency was just not available, thus turning Spanish dollars into pieces of eight. So they needed something with to make change. By the way, on the western frontier, oftentimes, or at least in the 18th century, not sure when this started, a deerskin would generally trade a dollar apiece for a full-grown male deer. Thus, you probably guessed it, a buck. Kind of cool, eh? Anyway, thanks, Gordon, and there's a bit more to Gordon's email. I'll put the complete text on my Coffee with Jeff website. But from what I concluded from Gordon's email was that money was, well, a confusing mess. But, of course, having it was very important. Now, before we get back to Mary and her business, it should be noted that she wasn't the first to create her own money in the colonies, nor was she the first female to do so. Just a few years earlier, in 1712, Free Love Liptoncott, what a great name, right, was caught counterfeiting. 
Free Love was the first woman counterfeiter in New England and the ringleader of a band of counterfeiters in the colonies. She was married to a mariner who, for some unknown reason, sent her to England. While she was there, she had six plates engraved for various bills that were used in the colonies. Once back, she and her gang started to produce those bills. But it didn't take long before she was found out and she, her husband, and a man named Edward Greenman were arrested. The charges were eventually dropped, but that didn't stop Free Love from continuing to create bad money. She seems to have been a career counterfeiter. But no one knows whatever became of her. Now the problem with counterfeiting is the plates, which are usually made out of copper. Free Love got lucky in that she had given the plates to someone else to hide, and they were never found, and that's probably why she escaped jail. In most cases, when a counterfeiter is prosecuted, the possession of these heavy metal plates are the biggest evidence against them. Without the plates as evidence, it would be hard to convict anyone. Mary was very successful at what she did, and the genius behind her system was that she didn't use plates. Besides the phony bills, Mary left no evidence behind. It was a simple method in which she placed a piece of damp starch muslin, which is a cotton fabric of plain weave, on top of real bills, then would lightly run a hot flat iron over the top. This would cause the fabric to pick up the printing of the money. She would then use the same method to transfer the image to paper to create a counterfeit bill. The muslin cloth would be immediately thrown into the fire to burn the evidence. What was transferred to the paper wasn't ready yet. From what I understand, it left only an incomplete image, almost like an outline. I would guess a light, ghosted, almost template of what a real bill should look like. Once she, had a basic once she had the basic image on the paper, she would use a fine crow quill pen to trace over the impression. She would work to create the same thickness of the letters to match real bills. And for this process, she needed help. Her brother, Israel Peck, was an expert at fashioning the pens and got to be a master at filling in the backgrounds of the bills. Her two older brothers, Stefan and Nicholas, as well as Nicholas's wife, Hannah Peck, and a man named Daniel Hunt, a deputy sheriff, were also involved in the gang. Hmm, a crooked lawman, imagine that. It is thought that at the criminal organization's height, it consisted of 12 people. I find myself wondering how she recruited family and friends into her underworld operation. I wonder if it was like one of those multi-level marketing home businesses like we have today, where you invite people into your home for dinner and then surprise them with a business opportunity. Thank you everyone for coming to dinner. Now let me ask you, could you use more income? Well, I have an unbelievable opportunity in which you could make money in your spare time. Anyway, she created various bills of different values, and it is estimated that in her seven years of counterfeiting, she made a thousand pounds in fake currency. Now, according to a website called in2013dollars.com, one thousand pounds in 1780 is equal to over 150,000 pounds in 2017. And according to the pounds to dollar converter I found on the internet, that's over $210,000 in U.S. money. Thing about Mary, she was smart enough never to pass the bills herself. 
she sold the bills for half their face value. Apparently, she had a number of people to help her with that part of the process. Now, people began to suspect that the Butterworths were doing something wrong when Mary and John had a new home built in 1722, a home larger than many thought they should be able to afford. By then, large amounts of phony bills were being discovered. At one point in 1722, they searched the home of Judge Daniel Smith for the plates that might have been used in forgeries. How they came to suspect Smith, I don't know, but... Of course, since no plates were found, no one was charged. Everything was going fine with Mary's operation until July 19, 1723. A pirate ship called the Ranger had recently been captured, and the crew was to be hanged on the opposite part of town. One of Mary Butterworth's money passers, Arthur Noble, was there and met three young ladies, and I can only assume he found them very attractive. Now, I'm guessing here, but I imagine it this way. Today has the feel of a celebration or carnival atmosphere. After all, it's a public hanging, and who doesn't like to see men get hung? Arthur, a young man with maybe a little alcohol in his system, meets three fun women with the hopes that something magical might happen that night. He reaches into his pocket and pulls out one of the fake five-pound notes. Realizing counterfeit money is all he has, he begins to wonder if it would be okay, just this one time, to use the money himself. A thought bubble appears next to him with Mary's head inside saying, Remember, Arthur, never spend my bills yourself. He frowns for a minute and begins to put the money back into his pocket. Then he looks up and he sees the smiling faces of these three attractive ladies. He knows they would love to have a drink or two bought for them, so he thinks, well, this one time couldn't hurt, could it? And then he heads, with its arms around the giggling girls, to the local tavern. Now, I don't know if that's exactly what happened, But he did meet three ladies, and he did spend a five-pound bill at a local tavern. But a woman named Elizabeth Weir, who was thought to have been the wife of the tavern owner, wasn't fooled. She took the bill to the authorities. The fake bill was discovered, and Noble found himself in the same jail that just the day before held the 26 pirates who were now dangling from ropes. Now, as often happens in these tales, people begin to talk, and soon... Another one of Mary Butterworth's men, Nicholas Camp, was arrested, and he spilled everything, turning King's evidence, as it's known, and they quickly had all the details of Mary's operation. Three deputy sheriffs appeared in Rehoboth with warrants. All were arrested, but eventually all were released on bail after questioning except Mary. She was held to the next court session. On August 14, 1723, a trial was held in Newport, Rhode Island. Now, I have read one source that said Camp was the only one who betrayed her, but according to Wikipedia, they say that her brother and his wife also turned state evidence and testified against her. So, if that's true, it must have made for an awkward Thanksgiving, don't you think? 
But the genius of Mary's operation saved her and everyone involved because after searching, the authorities could not find any evidence. Eventually, they had no choice but to drop the charges and release everyone. I wonder if they ever forgave Camp for his betrayal. Now, according to the book Counterfeiting in Colonial America by Kenneth Scott, in which a lot of today's story, but not all of it, came from, the penalties for counterfeiting were very harsh. Each colonial government saw it as a serious crime and handed out a variety of punishments, from cropping of the ears to the gallows. I'm not sure what punishment Mary would have faced, but I'm sure it would not have been pleasant. Mary was smart enough to know that she was lucky to escape this time. She shut down her operation and lived the rest of her life, as far as history knows, as a simple housewife. She remained married to John until his death in 1771 when he died at the age of 93. Mary lived for a couple more years, dying in 1775 at the age of 88 in Bristol County, Massachusetts. Now, kids, I know after hearing today's story, you might think that crime does pay. I mean, Mary and John got a nice large home out of the deal. And I know with your fancy computers, inkjet pinners, and desktop scanners, it may be very tempting to try something like this yourself. But I have to point out that most true stories of counterfeiting, things don't end up well for the counterfeiters. Take the case of Catherine Murphy, an English counterfeiter in the 18th century. Catherine Murphy, her husband Hugh Murphy, and a gang were convicted for counterfeiting and sentenced to death on September 18, 1788. The men were all hanged, but since Mary was a woman, she was burned at the stake. But the court did have the decency to strangle her to death before the burning so she wouldn't be burned alive. So, that's something. According to Wikipedia, Murphy was the last woman in England to be officially burned at the stake. And I have no idea what they mean by officially burned at the stake. But her story is another tale for another day. One of the most difficult features for a counterfeiter to copy is also the most basic. The paper it's printed on. Genuine U.S. currency is a cotton and linen combination that actually has a very distinct feel. And there are red and blue security fibers that are mixed in with the currency paper as it's being made. Woven into the paper is another tough detail to reproduce, a fluorescent thread printed with microscopic text. On a genuine bill, security threads should fluoresce a particular color. Typically, on the counterfeits, their security threads do not fluoresce at all. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. A few things before I go. First, I'd like to thank Gordon and Nancy Fry from the History Files for their help. Gordon for the information and Nancy for fixing typos. I've heard that the History Files might be coming back soon. I really hope so. I miss those two. Like I said at the beginning, I found the story really frustrating. I really expected more information. Usually, if the internet fails me, I can find a book or something, but for the most part, Mary Butterworth's story is always covered in a paragraph or two, both on the internet and in books. Even the book Counterfeiting in Colonial America by Kenneth Scott, which was the main source of my information, only had a chapter. I wanted to know about Mary. 
who she was and how she got into counterfeiting. How did she recruit her family? That sort of things. What led her to all this? But every source, including Kenneth Scott's book, had this to say. She was born in 1686. She was married in 1711. And by 1716, she had seven children and was making fake money. Do you think real research could provide more information? Because look, I'm willing to go on a fact-finding mission to the East Coast and dig through tons of old records and such. I just need, well, a lot of money. I need a backer, you know. I need someone to finance my work. So if you, you know, if you got a hundred grand or so laying around that you don't need, yeah, let me know. But as things go, reading books and using the internet is the best I can do. Anyway, I just try to tell an entertaining story. But how about the ending credits? You know, PsyCon is a podcast network that brings the world a handful of wonderful shows. But unfortunately, it doesn't happen for free. It takes money. And we can't make our own money like Mary Butterworth. So we hope that you visit our Patreon page and find out how you can help. Just go to psycon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, and look for the Patreon link at the top. And a sincere thank you to all of you who already support the network. Speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? Are you a fan of the daily show Geek Days? Well, Geek Days, as you know it, is no more. We are taking a week off, then Brecky and the gang will launch a new version of the show, but this time a weekly podcast. You can find Geek Days and other great shows over at the PsyCon Network. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Your story ideas are always welcome, and you can use any of these places to help me out. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, then why don't you just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars? You wouldn't believe how much those help. And remember, links to the sources that I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, to the Fries for their help, to my wife of 33 years for being my wife of 33 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you that listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks with something exciting. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream Didn't like it, now he never looks back Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Met a girl from Beantown Jeff was always hanging around She drank tea
the dawn of just new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, my coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, my coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, more coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, more coffee with Jeff. Thank you.